Prudence is this very fusty sounding word, but what it actually means is thinking well about what to do. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the first content-related podcast of the Austin Institute for Family and Culture. My name is Mariana Orlandi, and I am the Associate Director of Academic Programming at the Austin Institute. If I have a funny accent as we speak, please forgive me. I'm from Italy, meaning I was really born there, so be gentle. We will begin with a short conversation with Dr. Kevin Stewart, who is the executive director of the Austin Institute, which also means he's my direct boss. And we will talk about prudence, the forgotten virtue. Good morning, Dr. Stewart. Good morning. I am from Mississippi, which is definitely not Italy, but it doesn't mean I don't have a funny accent, at least from time to time. Awesome. I feel better now. So before getting to our speaker, and for those of you who are not familiar with our institute, let me just say that we are a research institution, which first of all, sponsors and publicizes good academic research on the family and on issues that similarly affect the broader culture. In addition, the Institute organizes lectures, seminars, various cultural activities that are directed at students, both graduate and undergraduate, and at the general public. So as part of these activities, Dr. Stewart delivered the inaugural lecture for the fall 2020 programming at the Institute, and the, the programming being focused on prudence, he gave this marvelous talk. So today I asked him to share some of those reflections for our online public. He kindly, though I don't know how prudently, accepted my invitation, so thank you, Dr. Stewart. Happy to be here. So before I get to my questions to you and about what you think prudence is, if I would love to introduce you as a scholar to our audience. So Dr. Stewart received his PhD from the University of Texas at Austin, where he studied public law and political philosophy, and was a visiting scholar at the University of Cambridge. He earned a Master of Sciences uh, from the London School of Economics and Political Science after receiving undergraduate degrees in history and English literature from the Louisiana State University. He's the editor of the Catholicism and Society book series for the Society for Catholic Soil Scientists from the Francisca University Press. Is this all correct, Dr. Stewart? It is. Did I forget well. anything? No, no. that's okay, just So we right. have Cambridge and London. That's right. So as I just mentioned, you recently gave a lecture on Prudence. I know that the full event is available online, but for the audio lovers, could we try to recreate that scene you set when you introduced your lecture? Sure. It's been a strange year, right? So the, the biggest thing to say is uh, Prudence is really important now. Why this topic now? Because it's very needed now. Why is it needed now? Because we're faced with almost an almost unprecedented list of crazy events all at once. So think about this year. It started with impeachment proceedings, a trade war with China, then a new virus causing a global pandemic, massive unemployment, increases in domestic violence, skyrocketing drug use and overdoses, suicides, wildfires, hurricanes, police killings, protests, riots, mass controversies. And then as recently as this week, some guy flying a jetpack beside an airplane at LAX. It's just been quite a year. Quite an interesting one. So yeah, that was the scene that you set. And imagining at this point, just by the list, just by 
drawing this list, one needs to drink, right? Sit the, down and have a drink. Exactly. I mean, that's the one thing we need to do. And then the next thing we need to do is think better about what to do. And that's why the Austin Institute's focusing on prudence for this semester, because prudence is this very fusty sounding word. But what it actually means is thinking well about what to do. Based on our actual circumstances. Right. At the most general level, in the lecture, what I tried to do was draw a contrast between two ways of approaching what to do. So there is what I attributed to progressivism, the sort of dominant thought universe of the last hundred years on how to decide what to do, where the method is generally to abstract these law-like rules from the messiness of the particulars to try to get to the universal rules that if we apply them, understand them, and execute them properly, will produce a reliable result. Right. So the goal there is to get back away from the particulars and the messiness of, of daily events. The thought universe of prudence, or from which the virtue of prudence comes, is very different because what it does is start with principles, moral principles, that create a kind of set of boundary conditions, right? We do not commit acts outside of those boundary conditions because we already know that those acts are wrong, right? So intentionally killing innocent people would be an example of a kind of boundary condition principle. It doesn't matter how much good you could accomplish by intentionally killing innocent people, you don't do it. We have general principles and general law. So we're not saying that prudence substitutes completely no. this what general it, principles and laws, right? No, that's exactly right. But what it does is move from the general principles and play sort of within the boundaries that those general principles create to the particulars and to take account of all the circumstances, all the particulars, and I hesitate to use the word way, but let's go ahead and use the word way those in our thought, because it's not like they're all equal in some way that we can simply translate them. Really, at the 30,000-foot view, it's most important to understand that the kind of universe of thought that we're bringing to the table when we talk about prudence is one that does not run away from the particulars or regard them as merely messy noise in the data, but rather that each circumstance has some weight, bears on the decision to be made about what to do, and that the goal of thinking well about what to do is to take account of all the relevant circumstances within the boundaries of principles and then commit to a strategy or an action and have the fidelity to see it through. I understand we're getting more into topics of the philosophers that we will have invited to talk on prudence, and we could you know, venture in, in, in analyzing prudence with St. Thomas lenses or with Aristotelian lenses. But what I find interesting is you, as a political scientist, you talked about how this moment and this, this setting that we're facing is the end, what you call the end of progressivism, which I found very interesting because, yeah, as you also mentioned, it sounds like, well, progressivism is at its peak probably, but you are, you're saying the opposite. I think so. So I, th I think what's going on is even at the moment where those who self-identify in politics as progressives are on the ascendant, the actual progressive thought universe is on the decline and may already, in fact, be dead in the, in the sense that n no one believes now that all we need to do is turn to the experts and they will solve all the problems. In fact, they don't even trust what the experts tell them is the fact of the matter. We do not accept anymore the idea that 
people really did accept in a genuine and good faith way. It's not a caricature of early 20th century views. People really did accept the possibility that you could abstract the same sorts of laws about economics or about politics that people did about chemistry and physics. And we simply don't believe that anymore. And so you see this vividly displayed in some of our, in science right now. I went into two major examples, science and politics, and actually kind of the intersection of science and politics, our public health. Which is pretty interesting these days. From this year, yeah. There are good reasons why people don't trust the experts anymore. The experts have shown themselves to be untrustworthy. They're not simply neutral. And in fact, they are sometimes very self-interested. And I, I talked about a very vivid and controversial example of that when this spring, Dr. Anthony Fauci, about whom I had lots of good things to say, admitted in an interview that the recommendation from the CDC in January that civilians not own or use masks was in effect a noble lie told to protect the supply chain of masks for healthcare workers, but not because it was true. If I may stop you on this, because I find this very interesting. So would you argue that lies are never acceptable? There is no such thing as a noble lie, not even. And here we get into political thought, also not only on the moral side, but also what's the role of a politician in this case? Is it ever? Is it never allowed? Is it What's your take on that? So I think we could de-escalate the question. So I don't want to cop out. I could say, I could say one of the possible answers is that it's sometimes permissible, but even when it's permissible, you have to weigh the consequences. And the consequences were highly likely that this lie would be found out. And in so doing, you would cashier all your credibility, which is, of course, at least with a certain large percentage of the population, exactly how it's turned out. So even on a strictly means-ends calculus, you could say that it was a bad idea to lie in that case. However, not copying out, yeah, I follow Aquinas most of the time, even when it seems tough, and this is a, this is a tough one, but he thinks it's always and everywhere wrong to lie, intentionally to offer as true what is not true with the intent to deceive. And I find it very difficult to find holes in his argument. So I have little choice but to accept it. That's true. It's hard to, to argue with it. Although I do recall Aquinas saying that there are instances where you do not, for instance, keep a promise when it is with your enemy. That's right. Or, so. or you don't have to tell all the, So not ever lying doesn't mean you tell everything you know, right? You right. don't always have to give all of the truth. We don't. I don't tell my three-year-old about the birds and the bees, for example, right? I don't have to tell him the whole truth from the very beginning. You use your prudence, actually, in determining exactly. how much of the, of the truth and in what way to deliver it. But that's very different, Aquinas says, from offering as true what you know is false for the intention to deceive the person. And for your people. Yeah, on this perspective, you also said, as you, you just mentioned, the experts have lost their credibility. I have a question on that. So do you think that as of today, a politician would feel free not to follow the advice of the expert for this? Or, as you also mentioned during the lecture, there is a sense in which they they do not, politicians do not have the responsibility to decide anymore because they can just blame it on the experts. So what do you think, do politicians exist now that are as brave as to say, well, that's what the expert says, but we just are not going to follow it? I think that's what's coming. 
That is what I'm expecting. So where we are, I think, in the development of, of this understanding is that what we have seen in the past, which is where, and we still saw it in the early weeks and months of the pandemic, which is where the political, the elected political figure, be it a mayor, a governor, or the president, steps aside from the lectern and the scientist takes over and the scientist sort of says how it's going to be and everyone defers to that person, I think that we will see drop off significantly and that far more likely, maybe maybe the first sort of shot over the bow on this one is recently, as recently as this week, the governor of Florida, Governor DeSantis, has said, even though he was advised, of course, early on by public health officials to do the economic lockdowns, he has declared, we will not be doing those again. This is the political authority asserting his authority over and against the scientists. And I think this is where the meat of my argument is, based on the fact that the political authority actually sits in the position and has the difficult job of taking into account not just the science, which is what the scientists take into account, but also the economics, also the effects on family, also the effects on our court and judicial system, the effects on the psychology of the community, the effects on the future of the of the whole community. Because the political figure, and this is where we get into it, the, the politics of science and the science of politics, the political authority has authority over the whole of the community. That's what it means to be a political leader. And so it's over that whole community and for that whole community that has that has to be his or her perspective. That's what they're looking at. Whereas scientists, it tends to be a virtue in the practice of science, so in the lab, to have a kind of tunnel vision on your experiment. You're you're zeroed in on the one thing or the small set of things that you're trying to understand better than anybody else so that you can contribute that expertise to the whole. And if and if all the experts do their little part, then we'll have this immense body of expertise. And that's really valuable. Where we go wrong is when we confuse that expertise on that very narrow range with the proper epistemic position, right? The proper proper vantage point from which to make decisions that apply to the whole community and throughout all these other areas. And that's what the political ruler really needs to do. So I go through prudence. I talked in a bit about the components of prudence, and one of them is called taking counsel. And the, the prudent governor, the prudent president will take counsel for sure, for absolutely sure, from the best scientists he can, but also economists and also law enforcement and also public health officials and, and all of these other areas of expertise. So if I understand you correctly, you also seem to be arguing that the tunnel vision adopted by people who are not dealing with a particular science is the problem we face today. And if I may interpret what you said, somehow progressivism means adopting a tunnel vision, whatever we're doing. Yeah, I think it's at least one of the vices towards which it it tends because it esteems so highly expertise where part of what expertise means is abstracting these law-like generalizations from the messiness of the data instead of getting down into the weeds, which is what the more prudence, politics-minded authority will do. Thank you. Yes. Because I've known you from our conversation, I know you have a particular good eye on seeing where the where the people, I mean, what the people are doing and how they relate to politicians. I ask you to speculate. And 
What is your opinion? Would the people now more easily forgive a scientist who is wrong or a politician who does not follow blindly what the science says? It's a good question. My hunch is that given the expectations they've they've sort of baked into the cake for themselves that they've built into their position that people do seem to be punishing the the scientists much more significantly for being wrong i think we can actually already see that what you're pointing out is the politicians are wrong all the time and they don't seem to take the We're hit less surprised yeah that's right they don't seem to take the hit on their credibility that scientists do when they're wrong And some of that, I think, has to do with those expectations. And also some of it has to do with the role that certainty plays. One of the vices toward which the expert model tends is pronouncing things with certainty or with more certainty than the evidence or argument actually admit. And so then you run the chance of having said very definitively, for example, that people should not wear masks And now all of a sudden, eight weeks later, six weeks later, however long it was, it turns out that was completely wrong, right? That was the opposite of the case. But since you didn't couch it in terms of, well, we're not sure, but we think this is where the data is pointing, so we're recommending this, but we're not sure and it could change. So there's a tendency towards certainty or towards too much certainty that often I think for all their vices, politicians are a little less prone toward, not all of them, certainly, but generally speaking. You have a particular love for politicians. I more do. Than, right? I know that's weird to say, but I have a soft spot for politicians. I've, I have known, in, in addition to studying politics, I have consulted and continue to consult for political figures. And so um, I have a soft spot for them. They have a very tough job. Whatever decision they make makes a whole bunch of people mad. And those people call and email and tweet. And it's um, so easy to be wrong, right? And it is very easy to be wrong. And they pay the they pay the price for it. And the people who are shouting at them for having made whatever decision they make don't pay any price for being wrong if it turns out they were wrong. So I do have a soft spot for them. In no small part, that is because it's a tough job. They have to, I mean, just Think about the job description I offered earlier. Their job is to look out for the whole community, rich and poor, black and white, tall and short, old and young. Sick and right, healthy. Right, yeah. sick and healthy, educated and uneducated, all of the various people, because we're we're all to be equal in their eyes, right? We are the people who make up the community for which they are responsible, and they're responsible for the whole community. So it's a tough gig. And I think maybe it is true that they have a greater sense that they're like not just possibly going to be wrong, but likely to be wrong along the way. And you did see, I think, in fact, mayors, particularly mayors and governors, being more tentative about what they were going to do. Right here in Texas, Governor Abbott was fairly, you know, I think was was guarded in how certain he said things were that you know, we think this is true, so we're going to make our policies on the best information available now. The policy is temporary, and when the facts on the ground change, we will change the policy. But what you're saying sounds that prudence goes together with a certain level of honesty. Honesty in what we see and honesty in what we say, right? Uh, yeah, I, and I think that starts internally, right? So the a mark of the prudent person is an ability adequately to assess what's certain and what's not, and how likely it is that what I'm saying now could be proven wrong. So to go from 
your analysis of the scene to and we we unfortunately have to close soon this interview because we yeah we, we we talked for already for too long as we often do let me ask you this as a director of the Austin Institute so you talked in your lecture about the collapse of institutions but it sounded like you talk about new opportunities that can open up and so I'm tempted to read in these words that there are opportunities precisely for institutions like the Austin Institute, meaning institutions that do research, so they actually try to have a tunnel vision when it's appropriate to have it, but also educate to see the bigger picture. Is this correct, or am I just guessing it like this because I want to guess it like this? No, that's exactly right. So, you know, I... I wouldn't be, no academic worth his salt can conclude a talk without doing it on the one hand and on the other hand. So I gave you one of those. And that is on the one hand, institutional trust and investment on the part of our people. So our people do not trust institutions. They are not invested in institutions and they are not participating in them in the way that they have in, in years, decades, and centuries past. Robert Putnam is probably the best scholar on that. That's not a good development. And so that's, that's bad. On the other hand, right, so there's the on the other hand, it represents a real opportunity because as these sclerotic institutions that were no longer serving the people of their communities as well as they once did and once and, and once could, as they die, such the, as there, there, <laughs> there is there's space, there are resources available for new institutions better fitted to our day and our needs or for shoring up essential institutions that are perennial, such as the family, right? Mm -hmm. So bowling leagues are Putnam's best example. America was once rife with bowling leagues and we hardly have any anymore, but opportunities for people to get together are still important. So we have to create those opportunities. And the Austin Institute does this around knowledge, not just not So just it's leadership. not only the fact that we are talking about prudence at the Austin Institute that makes it a good instrument to build this new culture, correct? That's right. There, there's something more there. There is something more there. So I gave a shout out in the lecture to our local hardware store chain, McCoy's, because I think their slogan is just one of the best in, in all of the business world right now, particularly for all of us. Their slogan is three simple words, go build something. And I think we can all take actually their slogan as a personal challenge to go build something, to stop sitting online commenting or fretting and get out there and build a community. Even if it's just a Frisbee golf team in your neighborhood, what Putnam finds in his research, those are not trivial. The, what Putnam finds in his research is that the small local organizations and institutions became, in the first instance, the occasion for civic friendships, friendships of people in their own neighborhoods and communities. And in the second place, they built the capital on which was drawn the level of trust that you needed in order to accomplish things as a community. Yeah, the, the little platoons, right? The little platoons. The little platoons. So with the little platoons, I want to thank you, Dr. Stewart. And I do have a dream that this podcast is our little platoon for the people that will listen to us online and build a community, no matter how virtual, but a community that can create and propagate knowledge and virtue and prudence. Thank that you, Dr. Stewart, fantastic. again. Thank you. Thank you.